Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Well, in uh, this session, gosh, we're going to be looking at who God is. Let's pray. My Father, it's so strange that you who is beauty, the fairness so ancient and yet so new, we make you out to be a dark, tyrannical, ugly being. We forget your goodness and make you ugly in our minds. You become cold in our hearts just by our forgetfulness, by our idolatry. And I pray, by your Spirit, opening our eyes to see Jesus, the revelation of the Father, would you enable us to see you in your glory, to see you afresh for who you beautifully are, so that we leave finding, we say with all sincerity, I rejoice to know my Father. I rejoice to know Jesus through the Spirit and to have fellowship there with no hypocrisy, with love and joy. I pray these things, my Father, in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Yes, well, we're going to be thinking about uh, who is God. (laughs) A small little topic. Who is God? This really is such an issue today. Of course, it is the issue of issues. It is the issue that drives all other issues. What you say about who God is shapes everything. I think if there's to be refreshment in the church today, it'll flow out of a fresh understanding, a clearer vision of who God is. And it is the issue that will shape and drive your Christian life. Who do you think God is? What do you think he's like? What sort of relationship can you have with God? will depend on what he's like. Now, of course, you can pick any number of gods. You can pick Krishna, Loki, Quetzalcoatl, Ra, any number of gods. But in the vaguely Christian world, ultimately there are just two options. You can go for the God of Arius, or you can go for the God of Athanasius. Let me just unpack that for you. So let's start off. It is the year 320 AD, and you are standing in the streets of Alexandria. And amidst all the hurly-burly, you hear a sound. It's human beatbox. They didn't have iPods in those days. And you actually can start hearing words. There's a group singing. There once was a time when the sun was not, do-da, do-da. There once was a time when the sun was not, do-da, do-da day. And they're being led, this group is being led by this cloaked figure. He was actually singing it in backtrack. Singing, Ajna, Stobadlok, 
Hush not, Gimbatool. And um, he's carrying a pitchfork, and he's got little horns on his head. And you ask, who is he? <laughs> this lectern likes holy names, not names like this. Who is that? Who is that cloaked figure? And you're told, it's Arius. Well, that's actually a completely accurate historical reconstruction because Arius managed to get all Alexandria, at least I can lean on it now, this is great. He <laughs> managed to get all Alexandria a Twitter with his teaching that the sun is not really God. That he's a created being. Well, how do you react? What an idiot. What an idiot thinking that. Yet, the way he got there was by thinking that you do every day. He got there by defining God without the sun. That was it. And don't we do that the whole time? What's God like? And I don't think about Jesus. That's how he got there. Let me tell you how he got to his particular place. Basically, he was going, okay, who or what is God? Well, God uh, is the one who caused everything else to exist, but who is not caused to exist himself, right? He caused everything else, but he's not caused. So, uncaused or unoriginate is the best basic definition of who God is, right? Doesn't sound too bad, does it? God is the one who causes everything else, but he's not caused to exist. Oops, out goes the sun, because the sun, being a sun, must receive his existence, his being, from the Father, right? So if he is caused to exist in some way, he cannot be God. Oops, so he just snipped Jesus out. See what he's done? Don't worry about the technicalities. What's the essence of the problem? He's defined God without the sun. He's got to God by an alternative route. And therefore, he's got a different God. And the God he ended up with was revolting. I mean, just think. Can you imagine praying, oh, unoriginate? Mmm, what a lovely religion you've got there. Like, unoriginate is going to care what you pray. Get away, not bothered. And if you try to think of God without the sun, that is what you're left with. You're left with the unoriginate. And what I want to do is just show you a little bit of what the Jesus light God looks like. So, okay. If Aries is right, the sun is a created being, then you've got God all on his own, right? Before anything else, before Jesus exists. What's that God like? Well, this God has been... Sorry, did someone just say something? Lonely. Lonely, exactly. This God is supremely lonely. This God has been solitary for all eternity with no relationship whatsoever. He's had no one, nothing to love. Therefore, this lonely God 
cannot have love as his heart beats. He's never loved for all eternity. It's just not how he ticks. The lonely God cannot be a loving God. And I mean, he'd probably love himself. But we don't tend to refer to that as loving, right? It's a fundamentally self-centered being. A lonely God, not outgoingly loving. And so, essentially, the lonely God, hold on to these words, is all about private self-gratification. And that is the only reason why he would ever create, if he would. See, single-person gods, having been alone for eternity, are inevitably self-centered beings. And so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. You know, wouldn't the existence of a universe just be an irritating distraction, like beach sand in your shorts, for a god whose real interest is just looking in the mirror? He just wants to look in the mirror. So get this universe away. It's just distracting me. He doesn't want it. And so creating just looks like a deeply unnatural thing for the God who's not love. And if such gods do create, they always, you'll find, create out of an essential neediness or a desire to use what they create for their own self-gratification. To use others. This God wants to think about himself. You, therefore, are an irritating distraction for him. Do you ever find that when you think about God when you're trying to pray? Thinking, am I just an irritating distraction in my mere creaturehood, in my sinfulness? As if from heaven you'd be hearing God saying, what now, earthling? (laughs) Do you mean... If so, you're thinking of the lonely God, Arius God. See, if God was not a father, he could never give us the right to be his children. If he did not enjoy eternal fellowship with the Son, then would would he even know what fellowship was? He would certainly have no fellowship to offer us. If the Son never knew any closeness with the Father, if the Son is a created thing, the the Son would have no closeness to offer us. He couldn't bring us close if he wasn't close. If God was a single person, in other words, a sonless God, salvation would look very, very different. This God might allow us to live under his great rule, and his protection. He might even offer us forgiveness, but he'd never offer closeness. He just couldn't do it. You can live under his rule. That's it. That's the gospel. And you probably have to relate to him through intermediaries. 
And since, by definition, he's not eternally loving, you've got to wonder, is he gracious enough to deal with the problem of sin himself and offer you a salvation for free? Almost certainly not, because he's not loving. You would never certainly hear the son's golden words to the father, you've loved them even as you've loved me. Never could you hear such a thing with Arius God. With this God, you would have been created to be slaves, and you're saved to be slaves. And then what would the Christian life be like? Well, quite apart from questions about, is this God gracious enough to offer a a free salvation? what, What is the one thing we really do know about this God? Self-obsessed, right? For eternity, he's just looked in the mirror. In fact, he doesn't even want the mirror there. He just wants to think about himself the whole time. That's what he does. And so this God is eternally introspective. And now, Aristotle actually thought this was a wonderful thing in God. Aristotle thought that God is so turned on by himself... His his own majesty appears so sexy to him that everything else is just beneath his condescension. He just wants to go, mmm, me. Everything else is just, why would I want to think about such things? That is Aristotle's God. And so to be godlike with this God would mean becoming introspective probably thinking all the time how am I doing how am I doing how am I doing how am I doing and whether that's a focus on my own performance my own brilliance my own heart doesn't matter the Jesus light God has left me to be self-obsessed. If you try thinking about God without the sun, you will start imagining a God so cold and distant, you will simply become more absorbed in yourself than you are interested in him. You will become like the barren, sunless God. Depressed. Enter in shining armor on his great white charger. Enter Athanasius the immortal. Now Athanasius, Athanasius, he simply boggled at Arius' presumption. He thought, how could you? possibly know what God is like other than as he has revealed himself. No. It is, he said, more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works only and call him unoriginate. Shall I say it again? It's so key for Athanasius' thinking. It is more pious and more accurate to signify, that is to get to know God from the Son and so call him Father, than to try to name God from his works and call him unoriginate. 
That is to say, the right way to think about God is to start with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not with some abstract definition you have made up, like uncaused or unoriginate. In fact, he's saying you shouldn't even try to set out in your understanding of God by thinking of God as creator, naming him from his works only, because creator is not who he is. He does create, sure, but that is not his identity, creator. If you're saying God's identity is he is the creator, he is the ruler, you're actually making him dependent on his creation. Right? If he is the creator, the ruler, he needs something to create, something to rule, to be who he is. Poor thing. For all his cosmic power, he's pitiful. No, our definition of God must be built on the Son who reveals him. And when we do that, starting with the Son, then we find there is something far more fundamental to be said about God than the fact that he's creator. There's something far more fundamental than his sovereignty and great power. We find the first thing to say about God when we see the Son is, as it says in the Creed, we believe in one God, the Father. That's the first thing to say. Jesus says of himself, I am the way to think about God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, you will not know God as who he is, Father, unless you come through the Son. But the Son, being a Son, means he has a Father. So when you see Jesus, the Son, you know God is a Father, the Father of the Son. And so the God Jesus reveals is first and foremost not a creator or a ruler. First and foremost, the Father. And that different starting point and basic understanding of God just meant that the gospel Athanasius preached just felt very, very different to the gospel Arius preached. Because, well, quite simply, Athanasius didn't have to pray, oh, unoriginate. He could pray, our Father. And there's a lot of difference there. Now, I have to say, not everyone instinctively warms to the idea of God as a Father. Uh, Because there are many for whom their experiences of overbearing, indifferent, abusive fathers actually make their guts squirm when they hear God spoken of as a Father. But here's the thing, God the Father is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. God the Father is not just some pumped up version of your dad. And so to transfer the failings of earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. 
In fact, it is the other way round. It is that all human fathers are supposed to reflect the Father in his great kindness, only that where some do that well, others do a better job of reflecting the devil. So, if we don't understand what Father means just by looking at our own dads, what does it mean that God is a Father? Well, first of all, a Father is a person who gives life. A Father is someone who begets children, who's not barren and impotent, but life-giving. Do you see, now already, just, just that, just that, is like inserting a stick of dynamite into your understanding of God. Just that. When you see that, therefore, if before all things God was eternally a Father, then eternally this God is a life-giving, fruitful God. It's not like he creates life for the first time when he creates. No, for eternity he's been life-giving, loving. And so seeing this, many theologians have liked to speak of the Father as a fountain of life and love. Many, again and again, have liked to do that. And they're picking up on things like the Lord says in Jeremiah 2, 13, I think it is. He talks about himself as a spring or fountain of living water. And scripture again and again um, comes back to that image. Now, just as a fountain, to be a fountain must pour forth water. If it doesn't pour forth water, it's not a fountain, right? So for a fountain, to be a fountain must mean it must pour forth water. For the father to be father, he must give out life, right? Eternally to be father means that is what he is. Eternally, he is a God who pours forth life and love. And that is who he is. That is his most fundamental identity. Which means... Love is not something that the Father has, merely one of his many moods. No, he is love. He could not not love. You see, if he did not love, he would not be Father, right? To be Father means he loves his Son, he gives life to his Son. John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that is the God revealed by Jesus Christ. Before he ever created, before he ever ruled, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son, delighting in his son through the Spirit. As the Spirit excites and quickens their love for each other. I I love verses like when, for example, you see Jesus in, is this Luke 12, I think? Jesus, full of joy in the Holy Spirit, says, Father, I praise you. Do you see? It's the Holy Spirit that gives him the joy in his Father that, that reminds him again of his great loving Father. And so full of joy, he praises his Father. That's the Spirit's role, to quicken the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. 
This all makes all the difference in the world. Uh, I, um, I struggle to get through a talk without mentioning Martin Luther. And so I'm going to mention him now. Now, Luther, <clears throat> Luther knew very well how much the fatherhood of God changes all our thoughts about God. Because as a monk, his mind was filled with the idea, God is righteous and he hates sin. He didn't really know quite what that meant, though, or why God is like that. He just didn't see any further into who God is. That's all he saw. God is righteous and he hates sin. How did it make him react when that's all he heard about God? That's all he knows. He says, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Because not knowing God as a kind and loving father, a God who brings us close, he found he could not love God. Here is an unlovely God. And do you know what he did? Who did he love instead? Do you know? He had to love someone. We all do. Sorry? Mary. The saints. He turned anywhere but God. He prayed to them and actually feel a real warm affection for St. Anne and Mary. Those are the only ones he could be close to. They seem to be kind. Unlike God. That all changed when he began to see the fatherhood of God. And looking back later in life, he reflected that as a monk, he said, he had not been worshipping the right God. Isn't that striking? For he said, it is not enough to know God as the creator and the judge. Only when God is known as a loving father is he known a right. John 14, 6. Here's how he put it. Luther said, For although the whole world has most carefully sought to understand the nature, mind and activity of God, it's had no success in this whatsoever. But God himself has revealed and disclosed the deepest profundity of his fatherly heart, his sheer inexpressible love. Through sending his son to bring us back to himself, God shows himself to be inexpressibly loving and supremely fatherly. And so what Luther found was not only does that give us great assurance and joy, that knowledge of God wins our hearts to him. As he put it, he said, for we may look into his fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, making them aglow. We may look into his fatherly heart through the sun and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts.
setting them aglow. See, this God does not begrudge to have someone beside him. He loves it. Others are not an irritating distraction. This God has always enjoyed showering his love on his son. And in creating, he rejoices to shower his love on children. He loves through the son. Do you see, in creating, the fountain of love brims over. The father so delighted in his son that his love for him overflowed so that the son might be the firstborn among many sons, many, many children. And thus the triune God can and does create. Do you see what a God? This is why he creates. So you see, grace is not merely his kindness to those who have sinned. His very creation is an act of grace flowing from God's great love. Do you see, love is not a reaction with this God. In fact, God's love is creative. They say in heaven, love comes first. Absolutely. Love comes first. He gives his life and being as a free gift because his very life, being, and goodness is yeasty. Spreading out that there might be more that is truly good. That is what this God is like. Do you you see the contrast between Arius God and this God? See it? With Arius God, you have a God who is empty, hungry, greedy, grasping. With this God, the Father loving his Son, you see a God who is super abundantly loving, generous, outgoing, radiant. In fact, just flick with me to 1 Peter 5, for just an interesting little verse on this. And as we do it, 1 Peter 5, um, I'll just unpack where I'm going with it. It talks, well, just think about this. A single person deity, a single person, inordinately powerful. Sound like anyone? It's the devil, of course, isn't it? A single person God, that's the devil. Look at 1 Peter 5 and compare verses 7 and 8. Verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, the living God, for he cares about you. That's what this God is like. Verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's the difference. That's the difference between the single person God, the devil, and the father who loves his son. Cast all your cares upon him. Be self-controlled and alert. He wants to gobble you up. Do you see? Look to Jesus. Like Athanasius, start all your thinking every day with him, and then you will know him as the heart-winning fairness, so ancient and yet so new, the loving Father who loves so overwhelmingly different to any other God. 
You see, the God revealed in Jesus, and only the God revealed by Jesus, the loving Father, this God is not needy, solitary, selfish. This God, by who he is, is bountiful, self-giving, loving. Karl Barth wrote this. He said, The triunity of God is the secret of his beauty. Get it? See why? The triunity of God is the secret of his beauty. If we deny this, he said, we at once have a God without radiance, without joy, and without humor. A God without beauty. And losing the dignity and power of real triune divinity, he also loses his beauty. But if we keep to this, that the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we cannot escape the fact, either in general or in detail, that apart from anything else, God is beautiful. If God is not Father, Son, and Spirit. He is eminently rejectable. And look at the descriptions of the God people don't believe in today. Look how Christopher Hitchens talks about God. You think, yeah, I hate that God too. If God is not Father, Son, and Spirit, well, who would want such a God to have power? Who would want such a God even to exist? But the triune loving God of the Bible is beauty. Here's a God we can really want. Here's a God that we can rejoice as sovereign. We rejoice the Lord is God and no other God. Now today is called delighted by God. But of course it all depends which God you're talking about. Look to Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Son, and you will be delighted. For he reveals a God who is beauty. But if you start becoming abstract in your God talk, then slowly you will just find yourself more absorbing Because you are more interesting than a single person God. But there's just one other thing, and this too is vital for Athanasius. That's the first thing. You don't just look to Jesus to know that God is a father. You look to Jesus to know that God is your father. You see, through the Son... The great love of the Father is aimed at us. The love of the Father is aimed at us. We've got to check out 1 John 4, haven't we? We've got to do it. 1 John 4. See how great this love is. 1 John 4, verse 10 This is love, 
Not that we loved God, referring to the Father here, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for his sins, for, for our sins, sorry. You see, it, 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 through that, through the son that we see, that the Father's love is not an impotent benevolence. We see through the sending of the Son just how powerful the delight of the Father is for the Son. How self-giving the love of the triune God is. Why did I put it like this? Well, think about it. Why did God the Father send his Son to us? Why? Have a think. Ten, Ten seconds. Why did the Father send the Son? Because, John 3.16, because he so loved the world. Now, that's a good reason. And you could stop there. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Sure. That's absolutely true. And it's stunning. Possibly not surprising, given the very nature, the superabundantly loving nature of this God. But actually, later on in John's Gospel, Jesus gives an even more primal and potent reason. For why the Father sends the Son. Come with me to John 17. John 17, uh, let's go from. Yeah, let's go from verse 23. John 17, 23. Jesus praying to his Father. Sorry, we're diving in halfway through this prayer, but Jesus says. To his father, I in them and you in me, may they, believers, be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So the father sends his son to make himself known, not simply to download some information, but that the love the Father eternally had for the Son might be shared with others. Those who believe in him. John 1.18 says that the Son was eternally in the bosom or lap of the Father. Now, we would scarcely dare imagine it, but Jesus says... His desire, verse 24, is that believers might be with him there. That indeed is why the Father sent him. That we who've rejected him, we who are cold-hearted, might be brought back. And brought back not merely as creatures, not merely forgiven, but brought back as children. To enjoy the abounding love the Son himself has always enjoyed. 
See, the Son unites himself to us by his Spirit, that we might freely share what he has. No other God does this. Arius God couldn't do it. But united to his bride, his people, the Son makes us one with himself so that he can say, verse 23, you have loved them even as you've loved me. And so as the Son, the Son brings me before his Father and I'm filled with their spirit and by that spirit, I can boldly cry, Abba, for their fellowship I now share. The Most High is my Father, my loving Father, the Son, my great brother. And the Spirit, no longer just Jesus comforter, but mine. I've been brought before the Most High and he is my Abba and I have his spirit in me. One with the Son. Hearing the Father's love for the Son as love for me. Old Sibsey once said, One main end of our calling the ministry is to lay open and unfold the unsearchable riches of Christ, to dig up the mine, thereby, thereby, to draw the affections of those that belong to God to Christ. Yes, that is how hearts are won. By seeing afresh the unsearchable riches of Christ. Delighted by God. Heartfelt Christianity. The focus isn't on our delight. But on the God who is so delightful. The focus isn't on our hearts. But on the Christ who wins them. And so... My brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who shows us the love of the Father and who shares with us the love of the Father. Do not focus on any delight you do or do not have in him. That's not your focus. Look to him who brings delight. Look to Jesus, united to him. He is your status. Then your heart begins to thrill when you're looking inside, grubbing around for how delighted you are. Well, you'll just scrape yourself raw. Look to him in whom is all fullness and be delighted. 
Look to Jesus, else you'll forget that God is a father. Look to Jesus, else you'll forget that God is your loving father who accepts you in the Son. My friends, for the refreshing of the church today, for the refreshing of the church today, let us be a people who speak much of Jesus. Who lay open and unfold the unsearchable riches of Christ to ourselves every day, to each other. For thereby hearts are drawn to Christ. For, as Luther said, it is through Jesus that we may look into God's fatherly heart and see how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, setting them aglow. Let's pray. Our Father, your humble, loving Son is the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your being. From Zion, perfect in beauty, he shines forth. And so through him we see the splendor of your generosity, your kindness. We see that you are so good. Blessed, blessed be your name. Our, our Abba. Amen. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalization. And Newton House, Oxford, invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of union and support our ministry, visit www.theola.gy